how do you go about making your voice sound like someone else's? And why would you? I'll be chatting to a bunch of people who can answer those questions and many more as they reveal the dark arts of impressionists. I'm Simon Lipson, and this is Making an Impression. I'm delighted today to welcome actress, comedian, impressionist, Kate O'Sullivan. Kate, how are you? Triple threat. <laughs> yes. It's, it, listen, this is daunting. I know oh, absolute... you've said comedian, that's it. I'm finished, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to Making an Impression. We've yeah. never met, but we I know if you're... working pandemic. <laughs> well, that's right. This seems to be the perfect time to be meeting lots of people in a very distanced kind of way. What is your attraction to other voices than your own? That's a really brilliant question. And uh, that's possibly why I'm sitting in this chair um, talking with you now, trying to establish what it is. I think we are a peculiar breed, impressionists, in the sense that I think there is something hardwired within us that makes us feel the need to replicate what we hear. I probably started this quite young, according to family folklore, you know, mum and dad were trying to have a lion and I was crawling all over them and pawing at my dad's face. And uh, he sort of scooped me up playfully and nose to nose said, you're a nuisance. I just said those words right back at him at nine months old. So there's clearly something there that isn't about influence or your family or how you've been brought up. It's innate. I think yeah. kids have a, a kind of a natural flair for mimicry in the sense that, you know, we, yeah. we hear things, we repeat them back. But there's another layer that I've discovered talking to various impressionists over the course of the, the podcast series, which is that there's a kind of a, a drive, not just to mimic, but to try and get the intonation, to try and get those little ticks in the voice that make it stand I think out from just... is a really good word, actually. Yeah. I think tick is, is how I would describe it. It's almost like our individual condition. I always thought when in that sort of who framed Roger Rabbit, you know, the, the sequence where somebody does it and leaves the punchline. They don't do that. Mm. And Roger Rabbit is like, he's going off his head because he can't, you know, he can't get to the door to do that. The tagline that makes us all sound like lunatics. But I think <laughs> there is that internal compulsion to replicate what you hear. And mm. impersonation isn't about doing known people. Sometimes you can hear people passing by as you're walking down the street. It's a way of, I suppose it's taking photographs, right? Of the voice. You, yep. If you replicate that with your voice quietly to yourself <laughs> as, as they've gone past, it stores it somewhere, I think, weirdly. It's so true I don't that. Know what the neurological sort of uh, well, we we may never know. That we, is. <laughs> we we may never find that's, out. That's for next series, right? That's series two. So not only are we doing the voice, but we're logging it, and it's all part of building. You know, the the building bricks that when you come to do voices, perhaps in a more serious way, in a professional way you can call in all of those little bits and pieces like accents and just how people deliver you know, conversation. And that, that informs us as we, as we go through our careers. But let's go back then. At what point did you recognize that, hey, do you know what, I'm good at this, and then knock out a voice that wasn't somebody in your family, that, you know, somebody you've seen on telly? And who was it? I don't 
remember the first time when I thought to myself, hmm, I can do this. I think it just became apparent over time. So, I mean, I was semi-pro um, by the time I was 10. Wow. Yeah. So I must have been a really annoying kid, let, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> Very <laughs> so I did. I stitched up every member of my family, you know, visitors. I mean, my prized possession was a tape recorder, as they were known then. And I think my mum kind of recognised that there was something there that had to be channeled or else they'd end up killing me. So I was sort of, I, I did a lot of ballet and all of that usual stuff, drama, but we sort of cobbled together a little thing for me to enter a talent contest with a local talent contest. And I remember being on that stage, so I would have been about nine. And I remember the the feeling of the lights and I remember feeling it was a 180 degree audience. So from left to right, which is always a nightmare. But I didn't know that, but I knew intuitively, where was I going to place the feed? Where was I going to place the tag? So that this 180 degree audience could get the joke. I guess, you know, I I used to record um, Frank Spencer, the Muppet show from the TV. And that was Did you do an early Frank I did, yes. Um, let me try and summon it back. The other day, mm, Betty said to me, mm, Oh, Frank, how'd you manage to get into so much trouble in one day? And I said, mm, I'll get up early. <laughs> um, so it's weird, <laughs> That's actually, lovely. looking back on it, I used to do men as well as women. I've had uh, a couple of female uh, impressionists on so far, and none of them have really had a go at me. I've had some male impressionists do some female voices. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. Danny, Danny Postal, absolutely. I, I fell off my chair when he did Diane Abbott. It's Diane Abbott. Oh, Amazing. It's, it's, do you know what? It's up there with Jan Raven's Di- Diane Abbott. It, it is. It? It's, it's yeah. just a magical thing. So you weren't daunted by the idea of you know, trying to emulate a male voice. It, you know, it didn't occur to me. I guess I kind of knew that it was so weird. I was a kid up there with um, the Gary Shand trio and um, my manager, a local well-known magician called Chris Woodward. And so we went out as a package. Yeah. And, you know, I was getting sort of 10 quid in cash in hand from an early age, you know, from, as I say, from about 10, doing pontins, butlins. Proper pro, isn't it? Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, who else would have been in your, some of your earlier, uh, you know, Oh, so of course, The Muppet Show, we structured, mum and I, mum was really resourceful, clever person. And we realised that if we structured it around the Muppet show, we could get lots of different guests in. So uh, I used to start off with Kermit, you know, oh, introduce our guest star. That's what I'm here to do. Oh, Kermit, love of my life, my heart's desire. You know, frog, if you were my husband, I'd give you poison. If I were your husband, I'd take the poison. Ah. So uh, I used to sort of, have a little bit of fun with the Muppets and then go into whoever. And my idol at the time was Lena Zavroni because she'd won Opportunity Knox. And, yeah. you know, she was like a kid and she was doing all these great things. And I thought she was so talented. I, yeah. And I used to close my act with her. She used to do a duet with Frank Spencer. There I was schlepping around, sort yeah. of managing schoolwork and, and everything else. I had to be off the premises by 10.30 p.m. And a friend put me in for Crackerjack. It was nice to see that they're sort of running that again, actually. Brought back all those memories because it was a big deal. There were three heats. 
I went to see Cracker Jack when I was about seven or eight. I think I, I remember having a broken arm at the time. That's 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 a, a binding memory. And it, Peter Glaze, uh, Leslie Crowther, and I think. Oh gosh! Okay, so that's the early oh the early I mean, incarnation. I'm, I'm older than I look, and I look old. Oh, so um, am I. So that would be. I've been in makeup for two hours before this. <laughs> well, it's worked. Um, <laughs> I was, and I think the band was the Spencer Davis Group, which was Steve Winwood. So there was me, just a mere audience member at Cracker Jack, uh, but you were on it. So tell me about that appearance or appearances. Well, uh, there were the first heat and then quarterfinals, semifinal, then finals. And it all happened quite quickly. And I come from the island of Jersey. So it was quite a big schlep. You know, they had to fly us over and put us up every time I appeared. It was really exciting. And I think it kind of cemented the idea that... I could actually do this for a living. Yeah. I mean, even yeah. though I'd been on the circuit for a few years before the Crackerjack appearance with Ed Stewpot and Bernie Clifton and Jan Hunt, Peter Glaze. Yes. Yeah, they were all fab. How old were you at this time? Did, did, I was 12. And so it was a, well, it's kind of a talent thing and you were going through the rounds with it to, yeah. to get to a final and you won. Mm-hmm. So was that doing... Impressions, characters, were you singing? Yes, impressions, yes, uh, all the time. And weird people, really niche people, as we were saying before, uh, Magnus Pike, oh, come uh, on. David Bellamy. Oh, no, I, 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 sh- I, sh- I walked right into that, didn't I? I should have known. You've, You've got to got deliver. To. You can't <laughs> name and not deliver. Uh, a, the Liva Bears, you know, so do bears. both the Liva Bears and Frank Spencer, uh, Margaret Thatcher. Oh, oh um, yeah. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, with her kind of fairly gruff delivery, not the not the high pitched one she did. You know the very one where she's kind of just talking condescendingly. Yes, that very very patronising one, where the, <laughs> the teeth rather got in the way, but you know the emphasis was very horribly there. But I think when I was in Crackerjack. I was rather doing that, the sort of Steve Nallen version, yes. a little more high-pitched, rather careless, uh, not as much emphasis. And Yeah, well, that's great because I've, ha- I've already had Steve on the show and he did that beautifully. Oh, and I think you're yes. right right up there with the, in the, oh, in the Thatcher that's... stakes. So that's, that was great. I, I was, it was delightful to do a gig with Steve Nallen many, many years ago when he yeah. was Thatcher. And I was a choreographer and Lance Percival directed the show. Wow. We get some weird gigs in showbiz, don't we? That, that is properly weird. I, I just wanted to say, actually, with doing Thatcher as a 12-year-old with a, a, you know, a, your immature voice, did you fake it or did you, did you find a way to fake it or was it you know, something you just, nothing, nothing much you could do about that? Because it's quite hard to fake age, I think. Yes. It's Not impossible. Um, it didn't strike me as an obstacle at the time. Mm. But, you know, I was, I was approaching quite an interesting point in my career in the sense that I had been standing alone in front of a microphone and an audience for a number of years by then, being various people. And my idol, Lena Zavaroni, was starting to unravel the stories coming in about this slimmer's disease, as it was known in the 70s. So 
I kind of was thinking to myself, this might not be such a good idea after all. And I wanted to be in a story with other people, which naturally that's that's what acting is, being in a play, <laughs> being in a company. So I always approached an impression as an actor, weirdly, I think. Yeah, I, th- as, I think that's anything. In, in very much Alistair McGowan's approach. His analysis of a voice is very much based on character and emotion and, you know, imbuing his target with all those kinds of things that actors look for when they're trying to centre character, whereas mimics like me just, do, we sound, do I sound like Ronnie Corbett? I do. <laughs> you really do sound like Ronnie <laughs> <Good>. Corbett. <laughs> it's good enough. It's good enough. That's great. So, so there you were, a youngster. You were already doing TV. You'd seen Lena Zavaroni's uh, Unraveling. But you were still determined to be a performer. Was that always the thing you were going to be? Did you go on to further education? I went to drama school and did three-year acting course, which was really quite a shock because it was a method school. So it's Stanislavski. It was very intense. It was from nine in the morning to a quarter to eight at night, five days a week, plus Saturday mornings. I was probably winging a lot of my career, my life as a performer. I would do things instinctively. And if they got a laugh, then they stayed. If they didn't, they were ditched. So it was really quite shocking to be in an arena where truth was the most important thing, not humor. And I found that really difficult. I think we did a production of Ostrovsky's Wolves and Sheep, which took four hours because everyone was so busy feeling feeling and emoting (laughs) Um, and so for me it was anathema having started as a stand-up yeah it was very tough but I enjoyed it it was exactly what I what I needed were you subversive because there you are with your natural (laughs) inclination to make things funny or to throw a voice in yeah I was I I was I mean I was expelled from Lane Theatre Art for having a water fight I know it doesn't sound like it but um I find it very difficult. There was a lot of unfairness, I felt, at the school. Um, The kids were lined up at the beginning of term and told to lose weight. Uh, You know, you're out by the end of term if you don't lose a stone. God. It's a very strict atmosphere, which coming from a Catholic convent school, you'd think I would be quite used to. Um, (laughs) However, at my school, it was understood. I was outside of anything that they could ever put me forward for uh, career-wise. So I was kind of left to my own devices. But as I said, I was, I was expelled. You know, I was called in several times and, you know, have you no character, no courage, no common sense. We called yes. it tra- trauma centre, actually, yeah. was our sort of name for it. <laughs> so having been up- upbraided at that point <laughs> in your life, uh, you, you left formal drama education at what 21 or 22 something like that what was the the next step well I was very lucky because I I went straight into the west end with hinge and bracket which was uh, definitely a piece to rile the purists uh you know because you had Patrick Fife as Lady Bracknell and Dr Evadne Hinge as um, as Prism uh yeah so I think our review was all parties emerge scathed (laughs) <laughs> which I, I think was um was brilliant. <laughs> I loved that. Uh, so I was Cecily Cardew, and uh, yeah, and then I had a period of unemployment in which I wrote a little play which we put on at the Rose Theatre, and I realised that 
that was another direction. You can mm. write your own stuff. You can generate your own stuff. So you were working more in, in groups, in troops. Did you get into radio? Oh, um, yes. Well, I, I retired from stand-up at 14. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I sort of sa- I said to my mom and my manager, I need to do things with other people. So I didn't return to stand-up until the mid-90s when an opportunity uh, to do Who Do You Do? with Rob Brydon yes. and Hilary O'Neill, you know, all the, all the, the fab impressionists. Um, that are so, that, I mean, it's such a huge show. Who do you do? They, they, yeah. we did 33 shows in 11 days. It was a baptism of fire. And yeah. I said, Oh, I'll do the audition, but they need to know I haven't done this for years. So I, I remember I did Billy holiday, which is, um, yeah, one of my faves. I don't know I did, whether I had the music for it or whatever, but anyway, I got the gig. So, that was it. I was yeah. before I knew it, I was I was back, but it was sketch based, so it yeah. was kind of the best hybrid. I remember the original Who Do You Do with you know Freddie Starr and Johnny yeah. Moore and yeah. people like that. Yeah. Uh, Paul Melba, which was a great show, but it was very kind of very much set in the the clubland of the of the seventies. You know that kind of Batley nightclub feel about it, and I think the when it came back, it was modernized but it still had a little sense of that club. it was really i mean it literally wigs were flying across the makeup floor yes. uh yeah we were in that studio from nine in the morning until uh one when the audience had gone 9 p.m at night yeah. the scripts would come under the door 11 p.m then the rewrite would come in at midnight it was- what was what, what? period is that what uh, how long ago was that 96 96 so i'm trying to think when I, when someone says 96 to me i just think of the <laughs> football so you know I, I can't get past that but okay so, so blair blair came in the next year yeah <laughs> um so yeah. who was in your repertoire then well you see nobody of course because I, I i dropped it like a yeah. hot brick from the age of 14 um sorry you're trying to get me to do voices i am here. yeah i am <laughs> trying to tempt you out um it was literally i had to start again in a way talking about process my process has always been listen listen immerse yourself but record yourself it's not good enough to hear the voices you must record yourself you must go through that painful process of hearing yourself being despondent about what you hear and being analytical about your own voice rather than the voice that you're doing I always felt when I listened back to myself that bar about four of my impressions, I could always hear myself. I could always hear my voice because like you, I would record myself or I'd hear myself on the you know, dead ringers or something. I think, no, I say, that's me. I can just hear me. The audience couldn't hear me. For me, that was... you think you were a, being hyper self-critical? Absolutely. And I think that's common to a lot of voice artists. Did you ever get to the point where you thought, you know what? can't hear anything of me and I can hear that voice and if so what was that voice I think I've always accepted that you have to have you in there somewhere it's you infused with someone else right Mm. and that point was brought back to me very clearly when I saw Renee Zellweger as Judy recently in the film Mm -hmm. It was remarkable because she was both Renee Zellweger and Judy Garland at one and the same time. I don't know what that means, 
but I think I've always been able to accept that I would hear myself in an impression and not be too despondent about it. Um, I was, I was the only one to, that I, I don't hear myself, I think, probably is singing impressions. So for Billie Holiday, it's... He said, oh, never can love again. Yes, behind me, keeps giving me that show again. I can't hear my normal voice in that, so you do occasionally get those. That was lovely, actually, and I, and I couldn't hear you at all there. If I were to do sort of Jennifer Saunders, I can sort of hear my voice within that because it's obviously we're in the same sort of spectrum of person. So, you know, that sort of... Oh, this pandemic, darling, it's bloody buggery inconvenient, darling, isn't it? You can go completely away from yourself occasionally. I, I, I guess that feeds back to what you were saying about, you know, the 10 impressions where there's not a trace of you within them. Yeah. But like, um, if I were do, to do um, Sarah Milligan, you know, that's like, um, there's not a lot of me in there with accent and with pitch. Yeah. But you sort of get the duel. But I guess Jennifer Saunders <laughs> being southeast. <laughs> You've got that lovely yodel of that's Sarah right. Millican. Yeah, that's, that's it. And it's so funny. I think, you know, she's like one of the funniest people on the planet. And I really, really love her. It's nice, isn't it, when you can find yeah. those impressions that you like the person a lot. Uh, the only thing is I can't find gags for her. I used to do Billy Connolly a lot, and it occurred to me that the only way to really do Billy Connolly was to do a joke as Billy Connolly. It was kind of yeah. at Billy Connolly's expense, but it was still a kind of the kind of joke he would tell. You talked about process technique. Mm-hmm. So where do you start? You, you're on, let's say, you're on a, a, a radio show, and you know, it's all about impressions. And someone says, "We need someone to do." I'm trying to think of Sir Liza Minnelli. Where do you start? I think the process itself is still a bit of a mystery to me. All I can say is that if you keep working at it and you keep listening and you keep recording and playing back and honing and chipping away at this block of granite, you will eventually get close enough. Whether or not it's to your satisfaction and and, and the producer of the show's satisfaction, that remains to be seen. But I still think it's quite mysterious, the whole thing. How we hear things how we reproduce them. Do you have categories of voice? Because Alistair McGowan was talking about this, that he would take a voice and say, well, that's kind of, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and now I put that new voice into the, you know, that comes in the Kevin Keegan kind of category of, or that (laughs) comes into the Richard Maidley category. So do you automatically stick a voice, you know, in terms of perhaps it's tonal, perhaps it's accent, You've got a reference point with an existing voice or set of voices in your little category. I guess Alistair is much more diligent than I am. I'm a bit of a lazy sod, really. If I'm doing a show and they need a voice, then I'll work on it. (laughs) So I don't have a library that I'm constantly updating or investing in. I don't have a filing system as such. But I suppose the only thing that separates a voice is tone, isn't it? And if a voice is very husky, although having said that, I will have a go at all voices. I don't kind of say, well, that's totally beyond me until I've tried it and and had a good go. Do you ever find a voice comes to you unbidden? I'm not actually sure that it does. As I say, it's that thing I've been in a few shows 
2D TV and heads and dead ringers on TV. A blagger's guide, we were required to do lots of voices there. And if they want me to do a voice, then I will research it and work very hard and, you know, make sure I get it right. But I, I guess for me, there's always that sort of thing of getting an act up and running in order to what? Go out there and do it on your own again? If it's asked for, I will work all the hours and, and, and invest everything in getting that voice yeah. for that occasion. Yeah. But it won't be one that I will sort of file away and, and keep and hone and um, you know, find a gag sure. for or necessarily. Can we take a voice that you love doing or that you've given you great pleasure to do and give us a little burst of it and then take me through what you're going through? You know, are you, are you channeling it through your nose, through your top of your mouth, bottom of your mouth? Because I have had some of my guests talking in very detailed terms. Darren Altman was like that um, and, and Alistair as well. You know, where's the sound coming? Take, so take me, give me a voice that you, you love and, and talk me through and- that. Lorraine Kelly, I really love her voice. So I have a lovely bright energy, which sort of belies the fact that I'm actually a cracking journalist. Uh, I could be talking about, you know, the harrowing civil war one minute and seconds later be complimenting you in your gorgeous dress, by the way. That's beautiful. I love it. Um, And so she's got that slight quaver in the voice as well. And it's really quite a high-pitched voice, and it's a very smiley voice. Um, I think she's from Dundee, is it? And um, not that I would know exactly, although I taught accent at Lambda for two years. Uh, You know, I think impressionists are accent anoraks, aren't we? Yes, Um, so so. phonetics and, and all of that. That's a kind of um a very musical voice that you have to get all the layers of, you know, the cheeks are high. So so the difference between talking like that and talking like that, it's subtle, but yes. there's a brightness to it. If the cheeks are raised and her opens she the has voice a smiley. Out, yeah. Uh-huh. And she has that slight crack in the voice as well, which is like, oh my God. You know, she's like ready at the point of hysteria a lot of the time, <laughs> you know, to kind of absolutely <laughs> yeah. let go and have yeah. a, you know, she has a really great time. Do you do the that very mm-hmm. earnest uh, Lorraine Kelly? You know, when she's perhaps talking to a cancer survivor, or you know, where she's right. trying to show empathy. Yes, do, yes. Do you do that one? Um, I don't know, but I'm like, I'm going to sort of like imagine that that is the sort of thing that she would. Yes, the head is cocked on one side, isn't it? But <laughs> yes, without yeah. being patronising, which I think is really <laughs> quite amazing. But I guess it's that journalistic core inside yes, her. You know, yeah. she's very, very bright. That's great. And you, so you've taken that. That is a kind of a leaf out of Alistair's book, and I guess the acting coming into play because you you're taking her training if you like her background and what she's really yes. about yes. And, and then imbuing the voice with all of that and you know, the, the back of it somewhere you've got that going on I think I've heard you talk too also about the the voices that one does where it's just a sound bite. So, yeah. um, you know, for 2D TV, uh, we had to do the, the girls from Friends. So, you know, Rachel is kind of like, it's quite easy, you know, because she's sort of got that sort of nasal quality and everything has a problem. And, oh, my God, Ross, you know, it's it's all like that. <laughs> and Phoebe is like, ew, ew, you know, it's kind of like, you know, she's got this and the teeth are there like that. And, you know, uh, 
smelly cat smell. Um, Courtney Cox was always the challenge, you know, yeah. because she's like quite deep in, you know, she's really, so I, I'm not there with Courtney Cox at all, but you know, I can kind of like fudge it if there's an animation to divert. It's possible that some of our listeners won't know of you, but they will have heard you many a time because you've been on countless radio shows. Take us then from, so I know it's quite a long period to cover, but give us some of the, the key steps. Before Who Do You Do, I did Rocky Horror, which was great in the West End. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, another musical called Lust at the Haymarket. So that was a very musical time. Who Do You Do gave me the confidence and the courage to say, well, you know what? I can do this again. I didn't have to just be a kid. Everyone thinks, well, you're great because you're a kid. I can do this. And so I went to a voice agency uh, with a a little reel that I I sort of, a friend helped me put together. And I was taken on immediately and my life changed within a few days. My life was completely different. One, One minute I was an actor sitting in a drafty church hall with my own plastic bottle filled with water from the tap at home. And then the next, I was being offered lunch. Would you like cigarettes? And, you know, would you, whatever you want, we're having some wine after this session. So the world of the voiceover fell into my lap. And I was doing voiceovers all day for five days a week for many, many years following yeah. that point. It was, it was a massive transition. Yeah. And, and that would be voices for commercials, documentaries? Uh, yeah. So I was the voice of Maybelline in this country for 16 years. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice gig. Yeah. yeah, it was a lovely gig. And L'Oreal. And so I used to revoice lots of the L'Oreal actresses or because they were like 30 grand an hour to come into the studio. So, um, you know, I would kind of lip sync them and... I think they were quite happy for me to do that as well. Save them uh, the hassle. Yeah, voiceovers were just, I met so many, all my heroes practically. Uh, you'd kind of turn up and Stephen Fry is sitting there yes. in the chair to do yeah. a commercial with you. Although yeah. this podcast isn't about voiceovers, but I think it's probably no. true to say that pretty well every impressionist has moved into the world of voiceovers, partly because it's, can be very lucrative, partly because it's work that we can do and use our skills. Because you're not always, you, you know, I, I often get called in by my agent to say, can you sound a bit like somebody? And, and I go and learn it. And then you go into the studio and do it. But quite often, it's just a case of, can you go in? They want somebody with a, you know, a nice, uh, nice gravelly voice. Can you go in? Yeah, I can do a nice gravelly voice for you. Although you're not trying to copy anybody you're using your vocal skills to present a style that fits the the personality of the advert i just wanted to come back to something that we talked about at the beginning which was you doing male voices and i wondered if there are any others that you did either because you don't see a barrier there or because you were perhaps doing them to order or Whatever, but are they, do, do I do other men? Is that is yes? That... Is, that's that's the easy question, which I should have <laughs> asked straight away. 
The only one that I think I was asked to do for a show with Joe Pasquale, and I'm just trying to, you have to bear with me now. This is part of the process, isn't it? Remembering. So uh, I think he talks like that, doesn't he? He's sort of like got that like quite squeaky voice and you can sort of like get away with it a bit like that, I think. (laughs) I don't know. And in fact, if you sort of manipulate that just slightly, you can get Paloma Faith as she is now. So... Paloma Faith. I love Paloma Faith. She's so funny. I love her. <laughs> and that was yeah. interesting because you segued from Joe Pasquale <laughs> to, to Paloma, Paloma Faith. Faith. <laughs> and, and you do that. I know Alistair used to do that in his uh, stand-up. Yes, his dot cotton into yeah. a Steptoe and Son. That's it. That was yeah. so brilliant, that observation. Brilliant stuff. Loved Absolutely it. brilliant. Just winding up now, here we are. We're sitting here on a sweltering uh, late latish May day um, <laughs> in the middle of a lockdown or a, well, a, a semi-lockdown now. Semi-lockdown. You know, semi-lockdown. Yes, yes. Depends um, on the individual, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. And I'm guessing that work is a little bit harder to come by right now. Are you still you doing know, some I, it voice really, work? It's staggeringly not. And in fact, before this session began, we mm. had a chat, didn't we? A brief chat. Mm. I was practically weeping to you, wasn't I, about the uh, the tech <laughs> The tech yeah. support that I've yes. had to call in from friends because <laughs> I've done an animation. I mean, I'm under contract to uh, several radio stations anyway, so I record for them as and when they need it. I've done an animation, something for Lewis's new show, uh, which is coming out soon. And anyway, that sounds like very boastful. But what I'm, I'm saying is I, I'm gobsmacked at the amount that still can be done. Mm. That's a, an encouraging story because I know for a lot of voiceovers, particularly people don't have a half decent home studio set up. Yeah, it's a very dry time. So I'm delighted to. Yeah, hear it's very, it's very tough. I know a lot of friends in the live arts, especially yeah, terribly tough. Um, yeah, but thank goodness for Zoom and company. We can gradually find a way of putting I things so. online. I mean, it, it's yeah. not live, but. You know, as long as also because I know that you know people talking about how the chaos of coronavirus is changing the way people work, and it may change the way people work permanently. And I wonder whether a voice specialist that may be something that you can do a little bit more easily from the comfort of your of your cupboard where you (laughs) well, it's not comfortable without (laughs) these wondrous sound engineers. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. We got there in the end. It was very well worth it. And I, I think we've covered all kinds of stuff. And I've written, as I always do, I, I've written lots of other questions and hints and things and topics, but we didn't get to. So maybe uh, on another occasion, I'll get you to do, I'll just get you to sit there and do 25 impressions, one after the other. <laughs> 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 am i that hard and not to crack i probably am yeah no it'll be but, my pleasure I'll be, it'll be my pleasure and i will that, i will do my homework and have them ready for you quick fantastic fire. fantastic but but it's been it's been absolutely delightful thank you so much oh. to kate o'sullivan for joining us here today on making an impression thank you to everybody who's been listening and uh, we'll see you next time bye-bye 